here for no reason. Yeah, or else I'll talk to you later. <laughs> yep. No episode this week, guys. Bye. Yeah, bye. Hey, guys. <laughs> Giselle, drop the ball. We'll see you all later. <laughs> Ten second episode. Oh, okay. man. Hello, everybody. This is Crystal. And this is Kat. You sounded like so. This is Black. Just oh. very matter of fact. I don't know. We haven't introduced ourselves in a while. No, we haven't. People don't know who we are. No. Mm-mm. Um. I don't really have any news this week. I don't either. Why don't we just get right into it? Um, sure. I'm excited. I'm, I'm going to preface this. Actually, I mentioned this last week that this is the case that kind of made me. Really, oh, that's right. Yes. Yes. Really realize like I want I need to do a podcast because this story is fucking important and not enough people know about this. Yeah. Awesome. Um, so I'm going to preface this by saying if this does not ruin you then you have no heart. Well, we already know I have no heart. Because so. this good luck. story, I, it, ugh. Okay, There's good luck so cracking much. this soul. Go ahead. Okay. Um, so today we are going to talk about the murder of Brian Dennecke. Um, whew, okay, so Brian was born in 1978. Um, his parents were Mike and Betty. And he had an older brother named Jason. Jason was two years older than him. Okay. Mike and Betty were originally from Kansas City. Brian and Jason were actually born in Kansas City. But in 1981, they moved to Amarillo, Texas because Mike's job transferred him there. Mike was a stainless steel cookware salesman. Um, So think of like your regular door-to-door salesman. Kind of nerdy looking. A uh, working class guy, loved his plaid shirts and suspenders. So it kind of gives you a, a picture of who we're talking about here. Um, and then Betty managed a photo processing lab. Uh, she was very maternal, like cute mom, cooks for the family. Uh, so that kind of gives you like a really classic like mom and dad situation there. Okay. Okay. Jason was introverse. Ugh, introverted and kind of described as being bookish on the opposite end of the spectrum brian was outspoken strong-willed and uh, constantly moving so brian and jason are very much opposites brian was not really interested in school and he also was not really interested in athletics so unfortunately in amarillo texas if you're not an athlete, you don't really matter. Was he interested in band? What would be an alternative, alternative like interest? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, now we know. <laughs> okay, go on. Oh man, I did not even plan that in. No, I know. <laughs> uh. Well, I, I so Brian didn't really fit in. He struggled to fit in because Amarillo is all about football. It's all about its athletes. I was going to say, yeah. Yeah. And it's also a very uh, conservative Christian community, especially in the time frame we're looking at that we're getting into the 90s. So Brian was not really fitting in. Uh, in 13, when he was 13, he did what a lot of 13 year olds end up doing and he started using skateboard. Uh, that's how he would get around town. He was a skater. He enjoyed it. Okay. He ended up meeting other skateboarders and they introduced him to the punk scene. Oh. Which, as you can imagine, not very popular in Amarillo. Yeah. But soon, he and Jason would actually go attend some local punk rock shows together. They really started immersing themselves in this kind of underground punk scene. Okay. Brian had been a Boy Scout prior to this transformation. But he basically quit. uh, He quit his Boy Scout troop. Kind of because he got in an argument with his Boy Scout leader about his skateboard. I don't know exact details, but like they got in an argument and Brian basically said, fuck off and left. That's a little odd to get in an argument about your skateboard, but 
Uh, he's also turning into a punk. So uh, okay, well then he he dyed his hair green and he actually shaved his head so that his hair was in a mohawk. Okay, and okay. that would actually become his signature style for the rest of his life. Oh wow! Needless to say, his parents did not approve. Well, yeah, I wouldn't either. Uh, they would argue a lot about Brian's new style choices. And during one really bad argument, I guess his parents actually tried to, like, physically cut his mohawk off. Oh, that's okay. That's a little too much. I I think this was a result of many arguments. Well, yeah, I Um, wasn't there. So I'm sure it's going to probably have to be really bad to resort to that. And I've often thought how awful it is for parents when you see your child change right before your eyes into something that you already know because you you have life experience right like you know isn't isn't a good path at the same time you know kids always experiment and and either it sticks or it doesn't right but like just like something like that like mohawks and, and then skateboard and so they're thinking like he's hanging out with the wrong crowd he's going to be you know, a bad kid. That would be hard as a parent to watch your kid kind of transform into that. So really interesting. You're like half right. Okay. So during during this argument where they tried to end up like chopping his hair off, Brian was very firm that he was like, it should not matter what I do with my hair. Why does my hair matter? And Mike actually admitted he said, you know, theoretically, Brian, absolutely right. Your hair does not matter. Yeah. But we are in Amarillo and you are starting to look different and you are going to attract bad attention. And that is actually, it was not them fearing he was in with the wrong crowd. It was them fearing for him. Yeah. That, that, yeah. That he was going to be attracting uh, negative attention toward himself. Which I totally can see someone having that fear, a parent having that fear about their child. But you know, at 13 years old, Brian doesn't care. Yeah. Oh, 13 year olds, you can't, you can talk to them till you're blue in the face. Believe me, it's like my job. Um, yeah, so eventually Mike and Betty ended up just acquiescing and they said many years later in an interview, basically they said that they were afraid that if they did not just allow Brian to be who Brian was, that they were going to lose him. So they decided to begrudgingly accept him as he was. Um, they would make little like comments about like, Hey, why don't you cut your hair? But like it, it was not arguments like it was in the past. Yeah. So getting to talk more about, uh, punk subculture in Amarillo. Okay. Most of the punks in Amarillo, you could kind of lump together into one group, but there are actually two really specific punk subcultures that are relevant to our story here. The first one are the gutter punks. These were seen as actually in punk culture. These were actually seen as like lowly, even by punk standards. Uh, These were runaways. They were scavengers. They would... Most of the time, they uh, were homeless either willingly or unwillingly, so they would squat in abandoned buildings, and they would basically scrape by to survive. They would dumpster dive for food. They would Jeez. get whatever menial jobs they could for money. Um, they were prone to excessive drinking, and in general, because of their less stable lifestyle, they were a little more grungy. Oh. So that was the gutter punks. Okay. That's an awful name, by the way. I actually kind of like it. It sounds cool. gutter punks. I mean, that's good for a band. Why not like the, like the, cookie punks or the? Because they're they're grungy and gross. No one likes them. Okay, how about the tidy punks? There are no tidy punks. Well, actually, there should be. really funny you say tidy punks because the next group actually were known as the Bomb City Skins. Oh, see. I like that name better. So uh, maybe not so much. Their name Uh comes from two different things. So part one of the name, Bomb City, Uh comes from Amarillo's nickname. uh, Amarillo is actually known as Bomb City because there is a manufacturing plant 
Pantex that's located down there, they actually manufactured and disassembled nuclear weapons. Oh. Um, and part two is from the skinheads. And it is the skinheads oh. you are thinking of. No, thank you. The Bomb City skins took on the aesthetic of the skinheads. Uh, the whole shaving their heads, wearing suspenders and work boots. And this was purely to look presentable enough so that they could get regular jobs. But they were still different enough that they identified as punk. Okay. They did not accept the racist ideology of skinheads. And they were actually extremely touchy about being compared to the skinheads. Oh. So... I mentioned these two because Brian Dennecke was a gutter punk. Jason Dennecke was a bomb, skitty, bomb city skin. Rivals. Not rivals. They were just different. Yeah. So it's it, still it, kind of like. Uh, not rivals because they're all in the punk scene. And in Amarillo, the entire punk scene was very marginalized. Oh, okay. But that kind of tells you the difference in how they manifested. That Brian was a gutter punk and Jason was more of a bomb city skin. Okay. So Brian developed a look that really set him apart and made him basically instantly recognizable. I already talked about his uh, green mohawk. Sometimes it was blue. But then he got several piercings. He would wear uh, spiked dog collars he would ride around on his skateboard until the day he died. Uh, Brian rode around on his skateboard to get around. So you can imagine seeing this, uh, this person riding a skateboard with a mohawk and spike collar and, and grungy clothing. You're going to notice up. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, this made him a convenient and extremely easy target. People would drive past and shout obscenities or insults at him. And he, being who he was, he would just kind of grin and laugh it off and shout back at them. But a lot of the time, he actually got in physical fights, too. Brian's friends, actually, because Brian got in so many fist fights, they mm -hmm. actually nicknamed him Fist Magnet because he would get in so <laughs> many fights. That's Fist Magnet. Yep. Okay. I mean. So also because Brian ended up getting in so many fights, he actually started carrying something for protection uh, called a smiley. What? This is basically a chain that was like connected to his belt at one end and it uh -huh. had like a big padlock on the other end. So basically oh. he has this big heavy thing that he can swing that, to protect himself. Well, okay. I mean, I, I think anyone would start if you were called... Fist what? magnet? Fist magnet. I'm sure you would be packing some protection something. as well. Yeah. Yeah. Something. And uh, fast forwarding to later on, a lot of the punks carried stuff. One of them carried a police baton for protection oh, at wow. one point. Okay. Um, in Brian's sophomore year of high school, he actually got really tired of the constant insults because, I mean, you can only laugh this stuff off for so long. Yeah. And... Uh, like the rich kids, the jocks would use their cars to splash puddles on him. Aww. So one day he got pissed off and he threw a rock at one of their cars. Don't blame him. I mean, not the right move, but I don't blame him. Yeah. It's just, you know, do something. Yeah. Well, Brian was immediately put on juvenile detention and he dropped out of high school. Oh, that sucks. So really shortly after he dropped out of high school, he's now 17 years old, he actually ended up moving out of his parents' house and he moved into this small apartment above a popular punk club. I saw in one place, I think it was called The Egg. The Egg? The Egg. Oh. Interesting yeah. name. Uh, he, he worked as a dishwasher for Catfish Shack to kind of make ends meet. And he and his girlfriend, Jennifer Hicks, who I believe that they had kind of grown up together. It was one of those, like, they used to play and throw rocks as, at each other as kids, and as they grew up, they got closer. She was also part of the punk scene. And so uh, Brian was able to save up enough money between uh, working at the cat from working at the Catfish Shack. So he and Jennifer hit the road. Um, they went and they hitchhiked up and down the East Coast for a couple of months. Gosh. 
every time I hear of people a while back hitchhiking, I'm like, man. I mean, they actually did good. I mean, they, um, to survive and make their way, they scrounged for change where they could. They would find recyclable cans or steel that they could trade for money. Uh, they would go to truck stops and offer to polish trucks to you know earn a little money. Yeah. Or, I mean, sometimes, again, they would just straight up dumpster dive yeah. for food. So after four months traveling, they went back to Amarillo. Okay. When Brian got back, he started working for a local eccentric artist named Stanley Marsh III. Um, and that was in 1997. Brian was working on an art project with him that was known as Dynamite Museum. I'll actually go into more details about Dynamite Museum and uh, Stanley Marsh III later because it's really interesting. Okay. Uh, with the money that Brian was making working with Marsh, he actually started paying for traveling bands to stop by and do like punk shows in town. Oh. Um, and this was at a place called 8th Street House. His big goal uh, was that he wanted to use 8th Street House and the money to create a refuge for punk kids who had nowhere to go. Um, he wanted them to have a place where they could go and express themselves via art or music or poetry without being attacked and harassed by other people. Um, he also wanted to provide a shelter that... Um, maybe people like the gutter punks, people who had nowhere else to go, could go for a roof over the head and food. So oh. he was he was doing good. Good. And it was just a place that these people could go where they could pursue their interests in a productive way. I think that's great. Yeah. Um, so now I'm going to change gears a little bit and I'm going to talk about Dustin Camp. Um, so in 1997, now in 1997, Brian Dennecke was 19 years old. Dustin okay. Camp was 17 years old. He was described as kind of a, having a boyish face, mm -hmm. but he had a million dollar smile. Uh, he was a class jokester kind of a guy, very laid back, never serious. And like many other rich white folks in Amarillo. He mm -hmm. was obsessed with football. Dustin lived in the really upper class Wolfland neighborhood where most of the elite in Amarillo lived. However, he was more like upper middle class. So while he was a part of this group, he was still kind of on the edges of it. Okay. Never seemed to really bother him. And because he was obsessed with football, he just, he really wanted to play. Yeah. Except he did not have the body type to be an effective football player. Um, I didn't really see much about his actual, like, stats. Just a lot of places said that he was slight. Okay. But he worked really, really hard. He weightlifted. He trained. Um, football coaches actually said, like, he wasn't anybody that you would, like, really look at as a serial player really okay but his passion for the game was 110 percent. so oh. he did not let his physical I, w I don't want to call it a physical limitation but like he was kind of on the smaller side so obviously he's not going to be a varsity player no uh, -uh. so in 1997 as a junior in high school he was still playing on the jv team when most of his other friends were playing on the varsity team okay uh, he would kind of get like ribbed about his size or like the fact that he wasn't on varsity, but he would just laugh it off. He'd joke around with the football players, hang out with them in the locker room. Um, so not really caring what they thought, really. Just, yeah, not yeah. really. He was just or maybe back. he did. He was just ignoring it. Yeah, possibly. OK, so the jocks in the area, to give you an idea of how like idolized they were. Uh, they were known as the White Hats. The White Hats? Why? Um, they were known as the White Hats because they wore white baseball caps with, like, really prestigious football team names on them, like uh, college football team logos. Like, the entire football team, all of them had these white baseball caps. Oh, okay. With 
the logos of the teams that they wanted to play for after they graduated. So they were known as the White Hats, but I think it's kind of like a double entendre with like Saints wear white hats. So this brings us to uh, early December 1997. A fight erupted between the jocks and the punks at a local coffee shop. This was not really an odd occurrence. I'm sure you caught on to that by now. Yeah. Um, apparently for this particular argument, it seems like Dustin was the center of it. And the fight was forced outside. The jocks ended up retreating to their vehicle. There's a lot of he did that. No, he didn't. He did this in this situation. But basically, Dustin ended up with his windshield being busted by a police baton from one of the punks. Oh, no. But like I said, little fights like this happened all the time. Usually a couple punches got thrown and then both sides would retreat. And it was just... It was never serious. Something about this particular fight um, simmered. And for the next week, the jocks constantly talked about how they were going to fuck up the punks. They were, they were going to have a huge fight. Something was going to happen. So then Friday, December 12th, 1997. I I mentioned that the gutter punks were prone to drinking quite a bit. Um, so they had actually spent some time drinking. Brian in particular was drinking quite a bit that night. Okay. He spent a couple of hours at Jason's house. They were listening to music and drinking. For whatever reason, he decided to head over to a parking lot at an IHOP. By himself? Uh, where this rumored fight was supposed to be going down. Okay. Okay, but he headed there by himself. Uh, no, the whole kind of group went. Oh, over went there. over there. Okay. This is another one of those things that, like, I don't quite understand exactly what happened. I know most of the punks were already going to be there, and Brian showed up. Okay. No one really knows why. He just like was nosy. I guess I don't know. Well, no, like Brian wasn't intending on fighting. But they don't know if he was so drunk. He just, it was like, yeah, we're going to show them what, like, this whole bravado thing. They don't know if maybe he was going just because he didn't expect anything bad to happen. But it was typical, like, the IHOP parking lot, I guess, was, like, a normal place for, like, the jocks to hang out. Like, Mm -hmm. I think we all had one of those in high school. Ours was um, the McDonald's parking lot because that's just where everyone would hang out. Where else are you going to go in a small town? So this parking lot is the natural place where all these people gather. So uh, all the jocks ended up there, all the punks. And then also because this rumor had been going around about this big fight going down, literally dozens of other high schoolers from Tescosa High School showed up to just watch this fight. So we've we've got a, a crowded parking lot here. And it hasn't even started the fight. They just know what's going to happen and they want to all go watch it. Yes. Okay. Uh, so Dustin was driving up to this IHOP, um, and so, but I believe by the time Dustin arrived, the fight had actually already broken out, and it had moved across the street to the parking lot of Western Plaza. And he was driving his 1983 Cadillac. He had two people in the car with him. He had Nancy Elise Thompson, who went by Elise, and Rob Mansfield were both in the car with him. Okay. Elise says that when they reached the parking lot, a large group of jocks was standing outside with a bunch of other students, like I said. The punks showed up armed with chains and bats and just various other weapons. Okay. And a fight just broke out. And it was so much more intense than any fight had ever been before. Elise said that sitting in the car watching this fight erupt in front of her, a chill went through her body. Like, it's like she knew. Yeah. She was kind of like, can we get out of here, please? Can we just leave? She said Dustin kind of started, like, the car started moving, and Elise said she thought Dustin was leaving because, like, the scene in front of them was absolute chaos, and she just was like, he's smart, he's going to leave. Instead, Dustin aims his car literally into the middle of the action um he starts weaving his car around through like various clusters of jocks and punks just 
beating on each other. Yeah. And he said, uh, Elise said that as they passed by this one particular cluster, they saw one of their good friends on the ground being beaten by some jocks or being beaten by some of the punks. And oh. Elise said Dustin snapped. He aimed his car towards the people. Oh, God. This is one of the things that makes this so horrible to me. But okay. before he starts aiming it at the people. The car. Th- his car. I yeah. quote, I'm a ninja in my caddy. I'm a ninja in my caddy. And then he proceeded to hit one of them. Oh, uh, with his car. Thankfully, he kind of bumped up onto the hood and rolled off. It was like shocking, but he didn't uh-huh. look like he was injured. Did everyone stop then at that point? No, no. The chaos is still going. So then that prompted the punks because he just hit a fucking punk. So the punks start beating on his car. And he, um, Rob, is like, dude, we need to get out of here. Elise is also screaming. She's like, can we please just go home, please? So Dustin, like, guns it. He starts taking off towards the road. And then he turns around and starts driving back towards the crowd. Okay. He accelerates into Brian Denneke, who was running away, hit him so hard that Elise prayed that they had hit the curb. Oh, no. She she said she knew better. And then as Dustin starts speeding away towards the highway, he says, I bet he liked that one. About who? About the guy he about just hit? The, about the man he just ran over. That's an awful thing. Like, that doesn't even make sense. I bet he liked that one. Yeah. Elise uh, said she looked out the back window and saw his body laying on the ground. And uh, she said she could see blood uh, pooling around him. Uh-huh. And she she said she asked out loud, what if he's dead? Which he probably is if it felt like they hit a curb or she was hoping it was a curb and not a person. Back in the parking lot when Brian was hit, the jocks let out a cheer. Oh, my God. Uh, Jennifer Hicks and Jason ran to Brian immediately. Yeah. And uh, Jennifer said that he was trying to speak, but blood was pouring out of his mouth and he just couldn't. Ugh. And I'm going to cry because this bothers me so yeah. much. Yeah. Jason held Brian while he died. Ugh. I'm like, I hate this story so much. That's awful. So, um, while Jason is screaming for help, he cradled Brian in his arms. That is really sad. It's so sad. Yeah. The t-shirt that Brian was wearing when he was murdered said, fight our oppressors, not each other. Oh, it's so sad. I can't even imagine what that yeah. was like. Um, So Jason had to call his mother and father. Oh, God. And uh, they said that he was in tears. Oh, I bet. And all he could say was, you need to come to Western Plaza. He and, didn't tell him what was happening. He he just well he obviously he knew that his brother well, yeah. was dead. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I he just said um something happened to Brian, and you just need to come. Man. So Betty and Mike arrive, and this was December, and there was actually snow on the ground, and. She saw Brian's body covered in a plastic sheet with blood staining the snow around him. I was going to say there was, ugh, awful. It's just really sad. I couldn't um, even imagine as a mom, as a sibling, as, no, uh uh-uh. Yeah, so going back to the Cadillac with Dustin, Elise, and Rob, uh, Dustin is just racing back 
towards their neighborhood. And they're kind of like sitting in like stunned silence. Uh-huh. And Dustin just says, y'all don't have to go down with me. I'll tell them you weren't in the car. And Rob just starts nodding. And Elise is like, but we were in the car. Yeah. Uh, sounds like Elise has a brain. Yeah. So then I'm glad that you're on the same thought I am because Rob turns around and he said, Nancy, I don't think you understand how serious this is. Because remember, her first name's Nancy. She yeah, goes by yeah, her name. yeah. So first of all, I think that Elise is the only one who was really understanding exactly how serious this is. Well, yeah, she's the only one with a head on her shoulders that knows like what's happened and what needs to happen. Yeah. And second, I'm not sure what Rob was trying to do in using her first name, but I think it was about intimidation. Um, you look kind of like when your parents like full name you. Yeah, but like that doesn't work from friend to other friend. Like he chose to use her first name for a reason. Yeah, that still sounds dumb. But anyway, I guess Rob's comment saying like you don't understand how serious this is. Uh, Dustin broke down. He started sobbing. He started smashing his head against his steering wheel. And he just lost it. Well, yeah, because he just killed somebody. Yeah. So Dustin ends up dropping Elise and Rob off at their homes. And then he goes home himself. He Rob doesn't, and Elise. He doesn't go to the police. He doesn't. Well, they all went to their respective homes. Okay. Um, Rob and Elise decided that they needed to go to the police. Good. So they both woke up their parents and they went to the police station. Good for them. And Dustin went to bed. How can you go to bed after something like that? Um, a couple of the reports said that he did tell his parents, but his parents told him to go to bed. Well, I wonder if they thought if he was just like saying things and he was one of those kids that just, sorry, I just ran somebody over. Oh, no. Just, oh, they, no. He was serious and he's just, they're just like, go to bed. They said, go to bed. We'll take care of it in the morning. Oh, my God. Except first thing in the morning, police show up at Dustin's house. And he's gone. They ask to see the Cadillac. And there is blood sprayed all over the undercarriage of the car. Jeez. And so that compared with the testimony, the information that Elise and Rob gave them, they arrested Dustin for first degree murder. Well, good. So while they questioned him, his story changed several times. First, he claimed he was alone in the car. Then he said he was only driving over to help his friend who's being beaten. Then he said he tried to hit the brakes, but it was icy, so Brian must have just slipped under his car. In both his written statement and his oral statement, he told the police he only meant to scare Brian, and he tried to hit his brakes, but he, he accidentally hit Brian, and he got scared, and that's why he ran. So this is his story, basically, that he he did hit his brakes, Still hit Brian, got scared because he's a dumb kid and ran. And this and he and this is right after he had gotten in his car, said he was a a ninja in his caddy. Yeah. And hit one person first. Mm-hmm. And then okay. accelerated into yeah, Brian. Exactly. That's what I'm saying. Like, please. And then the, how many witnesses are there? Right. Yeah. Okay. So Okay, good story, bro. Dustin goes on trial for first-degree murder. The courtroom was very obviously split in two. So on Dustin's side, it was full of upper-class men and boys dressed in, like, khakis and button-down shirts. A local pastor and his wife were seated on that side. And a ton of really nicely dressed members of Dustin's family all sitting on that side. Okay. On the prosecution side... Mike and Betty Denicky sat immediately behind the prosecution, and then behind them was three rows of punks. They obviously they had to remove their chains, their collars, mm-hmm. their piercings yeah, just to get courthouse. In. Yeah, but they still very obviously looked like punks. I mean, they have colored hair, they have the dimples from their piercings, yeah. they have the clothes they're wearing. Yeah. So the two sides of the courtroom look very different. Yeah. Is there a picture of that? Of like, probably not. Uh, there's a good depiction of it. I'll get into it. Okay. Um, so the trial lasted seven days. 
And Assistant District Attorney John Coyle led the prosecution. Uh, He was using evidence to prove that Dustin intentionally and knowingly killed Brian Dennecke. Which, Uh, yeah. Yeah. So basically his argument was Brian, uh, Dustin never even tried to hit the brakes. He intentionally aimed for Brian. He fled the scene of the crime and he lied to police over and over. All makes sense to me. Totally. Defense attorney Warren Clark completely stole the show by putting the punks on trial. Really? He said the punks showed up with weapons that night because they were the instigators. There are so many. I cannot believe that these are direct quotes from from the courtroom. But everything I'm saying here are literally things that the defense attorney said. Oh, my God. So he said, quote, a conspiracy was put into play to kill and maim these high school students. He called the punks weapon wielding goons. He said that Dustin was only protecting his friends and he had no choice. No choice but to take a vehicle and ram it into another human being. Yeah, because he was so threatened. So you're you're threatened in and you're inside a vehicle. And you're going to use that. Yeah, I don't get that. Okay. Um, Another quote from his closing statement was, quote, he had to take immediate action and he took it. And if he had to live it over again, he would do it again. Oh, my God. How ballsy. Warren Clark put Brian on trial, essentially. So Brian was wearing a leather jacket that he wore often. On the back of this jacket uh, was painted, destroy everything. This was a a callback, actually, to Brian's favorite band, Filth. But Clark held it up in the classroom, in the courtroom, saying that this is the message we want to send to our youth. Literally, that was a quote by him, that we want to destroy everything. He said that that jacket proved that Brian was violent and destructive. Bullshit. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, He also said... Brian was wearing combat boots, which he was, and quote-unquote war chains, and he was on a mission to kill. So now he, the defense is using, what, stereotyping as their... Yes. Yes. So one of the punks was on the stand testifying, and Clark goes up and asks him, how would you describe yourself? So this kid goes, I'm punk. Because, of course, it's his identity. Yeah, that's who he yeah. is. So Warren Clark goes, huh, that's interesting. Because, uh, you know, the definition in Webster's Dictionary says this is also a quote from the trial. He says, quote, a worthless person, an often aggressive or violent young man, usually a, a petty hoodlum or a gangster, a sociopath. And he read that in the middle of court. How? Oh, my god! The thing that pisses me off here is that Warren Clark got away with so many orations like this. Where's the fucking question? Dude? Yeah. Yeah. And basically, your whole defense is being held up by you just stereotyping and like going based off of how people look and oh, oh preconceived notions of what punks are. Yeah, there's more, and I have to say it because, um, honestly, this is only a small sampling of it, and uh, it's important to hear because it pisses me off and everybody gets to be angry with me. Yay. Um, In his closing statement, Clark said, quote, His manner of death was unfortunately the end result of his choices over the last six years prior to his death. You could even argue that he was destined to die the way that he did. He was destined to die. Absolute bullshit. Oh, my God. If I were those parents, holy cow. What judge is just going to sit there, too, and be it's like... fucking Texas. Oh, my God. This is... So, again, while this punk was up on the stand, uh, he asked, you know, why, why do you dress the way you do? Why did you show up to this fight with chains and spikes and bats? And the kid said, like, we wear chains and spikes because it's a statement. And Warren Clark says, you're right. It is a statement. It's a statement of malicious intent. Oh, my. This Which guy. is like, dude, what the fuck? Where's the question there? You don't get to just say this shit. Where's your question? 
like literally Clark is putting all of the punk witnesses on trial when there's a literal fucking murderer sitting right there. And at the same time, I think I don't remember if it was his opening statement or his closing statement, but he goes on this this like colorful speech about like, look at his good parents here, his good Christian upstanding parents. Do they deserve this? His parents didn't do anything except for maybe enable their son. Their son's a murderer. What does their son being a murderer have to do with what they deserve? This is frustrating. Yeah. So Dustin's friends testified about how scared they were, how terrified they were that the punks showed up with weapons and they didn't think that they would show up with weapons and that they were they were terrified for their lives. So I want to take a step back for a second and we'll just say, okay, we're being very biased here in in the story that we're telling. Maybe flip it around, play devil's advocate. Maybe everything they're saying is true. Maybe they were afraid. Maybe the punks showed up with undue weapons that they shouldn't have had. Maybe they were scared. Maybe Dustin was just protecting his friends. Maybe it was just a horrible accident. And Dustin really did try to hit the brakes. And he still ended up hitting Brian. All completely plausible, right? Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Brian's autopsy shows that that whole story is just complete horseshit. Because the damage to his body was so horrific. There's no way that Dustin even tapped his brakes. No, it's also when you said when we were talking about when it happened, just the graphic detail of what did that girl say? She said she was Elise. Yeah, Elise said said she was hoping. She said she closed her eyes and prayed that it was the curb. So when I hear that. You know how sometimes when you are parking your car and you hit like the the stop at the bottom? Oh yeah. And you get that slight like <gasps> yeah, and that sound that comes with it? Yes. So th- that is a very hard hit. The damage to Brian's body. His front teeth were broken. The left side of his face was torn up. His left collarbone was completely torn free of his shoulder. His shoulder was torn from the socket. His skull, spine, pelvis, and ribs were all crushed. And you're trying to tell me that this kid hit his brakes. In a parking lot, no less. There's no room to accelerate that much. Like, there's no way. If he was accelerating that hard and hit the brakes, he's running out of parking lot. So in the end, Elise testified against Dustin. And one of the quotes from her testimony was, his actions lie in fear and intimidation, not hatred. But what he did is still wrong and you cannot defend what he did. So the jury went out and deliberated for a couple of hours And they ultimately found Dustin guilty of voluntary vehicular manslaughter. Good. I was afraid they were going to find him not guilty. Good. They found him not guilty of first degree murder. They found him guilty of voluntary vehicular manslaughter. So the sentence that could be imposed on that is anywhere from two to 20 years. And so the jury heard character witnesses, um, for Dustin and they heard impact statements from some of the punks and so guess how many years that they ended up sentencing him to oh my gosh please okay I'm hoping for 20 years they gave him 10 years of probation 10 years of probation and a $10,000 fine but if he had good enough behavior they would waive the fine so he was sentenced and basically, he he said, thank you, judge. And he walked out of the courtroom completely free. Oh, my God. The parents oh, yeah. must have been beside themselves. Um, so news of the sentence. This was really big news in Amarillo. So it was broadcast live from the courthouse. And so many people in Amarillo were absolutely shocked. Many parents said that a light sentence, light is putting it like 
it's nowhere yeah um they said it sent the wrong message which is like the others were angry that somebody he was convicted of manslaughter and still so served zero time so by the time the 10 p.m news rolled around anger was like palpable in amarillo one person was so angry that they actually wrote an email to the local news station and they read it on air. And this person wrote, and I, I think that you will enjoy this. They wrote, if all you get for murdering someone with your car is 10 years probation and a felony free record, then I can only ask Mr. Camp not to let me see him walking around. Well, yeah, I would, I, I would say worse. Yeah. A poll in the Amarillo Globe News showed that 74% of respondents believed that the f- punishment did not fit the crime. And the anger and public outcry was so bad that the judge sealed the list of jurors' names because he was concerned for their safety. Oh, really? Yeah. And to this day, I don't think any of them have come forward. Oh, my goodness. There was an alternate juror who came forward and he was not part of deliberations because the alternates see everything, but they don't really deliberate unless you need them to. The alternate juror said that he was shocked that they did not convict him of murder. Like in his opinion, they should have, which is crazy to me. That is crazy. Um, In the aftermath, many of the punks continued to be harassed and... Of course, they're extremely frustrated from the trial and really sad. Most of them shaved off their mohawks. They kind of changed their clothing and they went into like this mourning period. I would too. The punks said that it was comforting that the public was so angry about the injustice here. But they all agreed that like this anger was like too little too late. Like no one cared before the trial. No one cared before the murder. No one cared when it was just these fringe folks getting harassed on the street. They only cared after something bad happened. So in 2001, this is two years after Dustin's conviction, he did end up going to jail, but only because he violated his parole. He got caught at a party that was busted by police, and he tried to escape out a back door. So he ended up being charged as a minor in possession of alcohol and evading arrest. And he was sentenced to eight years prison time. And so he he went to prison. But then he only served five years. That's ridiculous. I found a quote on Reddit that I thought was kind of interesting. So take this with a grain of salt because it's from Reddit. But um, somebody said that they remember one of the school counselors saying this. Um, And it was from from the high school where this had all gone down. Um, They said, I don't see evil as long hair, baggy pants and chains. I see evil as khaki pants, button down shirt and a Cadillac. Um, So you asked about if there are any photos of like the courtroom. Yeah. I don't think there are. But there's a movie that came out and it's called Bomb City. Um, I believe this came out in 2018 or 2019. I highly recommend this movie. It is so good. I would not usually use like an entertainment type movie as research, except Brian's parents explicitly worked with the screenwriters on this. They have come out after the movie has come out and they said they fully support the way that their son was depicted in this movie and his friends. And um, they said that as far as they were concerned, this movie is true to the story. So I I highly recommend that people go watch, watch this. It. Yeah. It's on Amazon Prime right now. Oh, is it? Yes. Okay, I'm going to watch it. Yeah. Um and actually additionally one of Brian's friends was on set while they were filming and they actually stopped the guy who was playing Brian and he said it is it is so eerie. You sound like Brian, you look like Brian, like your mannerisms oh, everything. Oh wow. And the actor was like Please tell me if there's any. He's like, this is so important to me. Please tell me if there's anything that I'm doing that's not true to Brian. And the friend was like, no. Everything is. Yeah. Um, So the movie ends up telling the story of this. Um, I think it's only a few days leading up to December 12th. The timeline seems really crunched down. 
Um, they changed a lot of people's names, but uh, now that you've kind of heard the story, you'll know watching it who's who. Dustin's name has been changed to Cody Cates in the movie. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, uh, the director said that he changed some of those names because he was not out to vilify anyone. He actually really tried to stay as true to public record as he possibly could. And he tried to make sure that he portrayed the duality of who these people were. So yeah, he was just trying to tell the story, basically. Doing his best to tell yeah. the story. Uh-huh. Um, I couldn't find this anywhere else, so I didn't want to include it in the main story. I thought this was interesting, and I really hope this is true. But in the movie, the punks refer to their chains and bats and weapons as equalizers. Like, this was their way of protecting themselves. These were not weapons. This was, they called them equalizers. The weapons were called equalizers? Not like a name for the weapon. But oh, like, okay. Like, they would say, we need equalizers. We need protection. Okay. So this was their way of fighting back because they'd been attacked so much. Yeah. Like I said, the Denikis, Mike, Betty, and Jason all gave their explicit blessing to the writer and the screenwriter, the director and the screenwriters before the script even started. Like the screenwriters approached them and said, we want to tell this story, but we want to do it right. And the Denikis originally were like, but they agreed. And I think they're happy with how it turned out. Um, So the first time the movie was played in Amarillo, they debuted at um a dallas film festival Uh uh-huh and so then they came back and they played it in amarillo and they were going to use the amarillo globe news center for performing arts just um it's usually used for like the symphony and the ballet Uh like concerts uh the directors were really worried about how it would be received because this was such a polarizing topic uh they were really concerned they didn't know how well it would go So this theater was 1,300 seats, and it was completely sold out. That theater had only sold out one other time since it had been opened Uh for a Brooks and Dunn concert. Oh, really? Yeah. So this this was like a big deal. And apparently it went really well. They even they hosted a Q&A afterwards. They said it was amicable. It went over well. They were very conscientious of like, we need to be careful in this Q&A that nothing like there's no argument there's no uh, harassment here they said they were happy with how it went Uh, that's weird so i wanted to talk about stanley marsh the third um he was an eccentric man and to give you an example of like how eccentric his his name is spelled stanley marsh three because he thought the roman numeral three for the third was pretentious and he didn't like it so if you look him up, he's he's listed as Stanley Marsh Three. Oh my goodness! He's actually best known for Cadillac Ranch, that uh, the art installment along Route sixty six in Amarillo with the uh-huh. Cadillac standing up in the dirt. Um, that's what he's best known for. That's one of his art projects, and uh, you can actually go see it if you want to. It's on private property but they welcome people to walk in take spray paint go paint it i've been there we we painted them a little bit it was fun oh neat um one of the other art installments that he's known for is called osmandius on the plains Uh uh-huh i think the locals just call this the legs (laughs) Um, the legs yes it it could (laughs) I'll I'll post a picture of it but literally it's like this crumbled like they're just giant legs in the middle that's of that's so weird. This guy's weird. Um, it could have just been like Jane and her friends that called it the legs while she lived there. The but legs, yeah, yeah. They're just because. What's more fun, Osmandius or the legs? I like the legs. I, I like the legs. Yeah. Like I said, these are basically just like two disembodied giant legs just in the middle of grass. What's really funny is. The locals keep spray painting knee-high socks on them. (laughs) And like every now and then, I don't know who does this because Stanley Marsh actually died. But um, someone will come by every now and then like sandblast the legs to get the paint off. But then someone comes back and they paint the socks back on. Oh, my God. (laughs) Um, So And then Dynamite Museum. This was the project that Brian worked on. 
Um, this art project was basically a bunch of fake road signs with weird pictures, weird sayings on them that just went up everywhere. So some of the sayings are um, road does not end. Lubbock is a greasy spoon. The roaches in my kitchen tremble. The roaches in my kitchen tremble. Just random stuff. If you Google Dynamite Museum, you'll see a bunch of these signs. They're honestly really, really cool. But this is what Brian would do. So basically, Brian would drive around in like a minivan and just like walk up to a homeowner and be like, hey, you want to sign? You want to pay for one? We'll install it for you. And think of this. He's he he looks like a punk. He's he's got chains and piercings and tattoos and a mohawk. Stanley Marsh said he looked bizarre, but he could walk towards people with his hand out grinning and they would like him before he even got to their front door. I called him Sunshine. He was boisterous, optimistic, fun. So Sunshine just stuck. Aww. And actually, if you watch Bomb City, you'll hear at one point they refer to him as Sunshine. Aww, that's cute. Um, so at one point in time, Dynamite Museum was the single largest urban art project in the world. Oh, wow. Uh, I don't think anyone really And that knows. was the one that he worked at before. He was that's, helping with that's before. The signs. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't think anyone really knows the exact number of signs. There's estimated to be 3,000 around Amarillo. And these are all on private property. Oh. Um, so in October 2012, which kind of loops this back around to crime again, Marsh was a defendant in a series of lawsuits alleging sexual abuse of underage boys. Um, this first one was settled out of court in February 2013. And a judge ruled that neither party were allowed to talk about the settlement. They couldn't talk about what it was, how much it was, any details. But uh -huh. they did settle out of court. Oh. In April 2013, he was indicted by a grand jury of sexual assault of two teenagers. And he was charged on 14 different sexual assault charges. Jeez. Um, I don't know what came of this because... Stanley actually suffered from a series of several really bad strokes in 2011 that uh -huh. left him basically in hospice. So he was indicted on these charges. I don't know if he was ever convicted. Jeez. And ultimately, he died in June 2014 in hospice. Um, I saw a little short blurb about another possible assault from 1998. And this would have been really close to the time that Brian was working with him. Brian died in 1997 and was working with him in 1997. Uh -huh. But the little blurb I saw had something to do with a teenager getting caught stealing one of Marsh's signs. And Marsh was insanely protective of these signs. So apparently four different teens were involved with this i guess marsh the story is that he physically took this boy and shoved him in like a chicken coop and assaulted him in the chicken coop assaulted him in the chicken coop yeah oh, um God. so apparently four separate teenagers were involved in this they a judge ruled that they all had to do separate trials they couldn't do a one joint one together. I have no idea why. The information on this is so sparse. It was literally two paragraphs in a book, and I could not find anything else. Um, Marsh pled no contest to unlawful restraint and criminal trespassing in exchange for having the other charges dismissed that resulted from this. The charges he had dismissed were kidnapping, aggravated assault with a deadly weapon, and three counts of indecency with a child. All of oh those got goodness. dismissed. So he was ordered to pay a $4,000 fine. And he served 10 days of community service. And that's it. Jeez. So uh, for a little while, and I don't know if this is still going on or not. It was kind of hard to find current information about this. But Dynamite Museum was really controversial for a while because of Stanley Marsh and all of these sexual assault charges. There was actually a group going around that was like ordering the signs to be taken down. Just because. But like 
Well, because this was an art installment that everyone knew Stanley Marsh did this. And apparently this group was claiming that seeing these signs around town, 3,000 signs around town, you're seeing them literally anywhere you go. That this was a painful reminder and a trigger for Stanley's assault victims. Ultimately, all of the signs are on private property. The owners want them there so they can't be taken down. Um, And Dynamite Museum, I believe it's still up as like a group. And they offered like, if you want us to take the signs down, we'll take the signs down. Yeah. But they're still around. That's crazy. Yeah. And like I said, I'll... I'll find a couple of my favorites and I'll post them on Instagram, but you can also easily do a Google or a Facebook search for dynamite museum because there's so many then, interesting yeah. things. Yeah. I'm going to look into it. Yeah. Um, and you can actually tell. So Brian, some of the signs that he painted, it wasn't all words. Some of them were pictures and paintings. Mm-hmm. Brian put himself into a lot of them. So a lot of these signs actually have a depiction of a boy with a green Mohawk. And those are the ones that Brian did. Oh, so it's kind of like this memoir of like Brian is still existing. And Uh most people I had never heard of this story, honestly, until my sister told me about it because she lived in the town. Um, And I know a lot of people who are not part of punk, punk, punk culture have heard of this, but this is still very much alive. So. Um, you know how you can kind of you can create a memorial page for someone after they yeah. died. There's a memorial page for Brian that is um on findagrave.com and you can comment there. You can it's something called leave a flower. I think it's like a like. It's that website's version of a like, I think. Yeah. When I visited this website, somebody had left a flower on January 2nd, 2022. We're recording this on the 12th. Oh. So people People still very much think of it. Oh, wow. So that was, yeah. Um, There are a few dozen songs devoted to Brian and his story. Marilyn Manson uh, gave a speech about it. I've I've heard that Marilyn Manson gets a little touchy when you use his stuff. I wanted to use some audio from the speech, but I'm deciding not to. I I will link a YouTube video that has Marilyn Manson talking about this. Um, I just don't want to put it in the episode. Oh, okay. Copyright and all that. Yeah. Um, so I just wanted to end on a quote um, okay. from Elise. So Elise ended up actually graduating as valedictorian in 1998. Mm-hmm. When she gave her speech, um, here is a quote from her speech. Um, and to give a little context... People in town were very uncomfortable talking about this. They all referred to it as that night mm-hmm. um, to kind of give you an idea of how uncomfortable the auditorium was. There were 5,000 mm-hmm. people there when she was speaking. Oh, wow. So she said, quote, on that evening, a boy lost his life and with him, a part of many people died. Nothing else I have experienced has so greatly molded who I am and what I think. I hope its message can penetrate your heart. The fight was literally between two groups of people who wore different types of clothes. So I challenge you and me, all of us, to break through the stereotypes with which you may have been raised. I challenge each of us to see the art, the beauty of humanity in others. Aww. So, yeah. That's nice. It's just, it's so sad. It is sad. For something as dumb as like, okay, granted... The punks were in trouble with the law often. They tagged. They were squatting. They probably stole. They started fights. They were not picture-perfect kids. But they didn't deserve this. No, not at all. And it's like, I mean, the thing that gets me is the defense and everything. Yes. The defense used against... um against the punks basically right and just using their image against them yeah Uh, yeah so um i believe it was texas monthly was the article that i was reading um the author of the article interviewed jennifer hicks um i think it was a year or two after brian's death 
and he went to the warehouse where she was living and she had Brian's leather jacket hanging up. She still had some of his possessions around. Oh, it's just so sad. It's awful. Yeah. So go watch Bomb City. I'm going to watch that. It's so good. I'm going to watch that. Yeah. Well, I can see why you uh, were interested in this one. I It is heartbreaking and sad. And it's just, it's senseless. And it's... But it did not break me. <laughs> oh, man, I hate this one so much. It's so sad. And just like the damage to his body. And this kid is going to sit there and try and say that he he hit his brakes. I know that's 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 ridiculous. And he he got probation. And for anyone to believe that. He got probation. I know. I mean, I, I like in that moment when his brother and parents heard that, I cannot even imagine what they were feeling at that moment. Well, I mean, his brother witnessed him getting hit. That's what I'm saying. It's awful. And then, so then for you to hear that the person that killed your brother. Oh, getting probation. Yeah. Yeah. That would be just salt in the wound. Yeah. It's horrible. Well, thank you. Well, thanks. You're welcome. You all can simmer with that for a week. Sorry you had to listen to me cry. (laughs) It's okay. Sorry you had had to listen to me confirm that I have no soul. So it's all right. It's okay. <laughs> okay. Well, you like almost cried during, um, no, you did cry during uh, Anna Creasel. Oh, that, yes. Because that was awful. This was awful. That was awful. Yes. I didn't cry during that one. I was yeah, really sad. No, I'm, a sympathy, yeah. I'm a sympathy crier. So like when you start yeah. tearing up, I start tearing up. But like. Notice I was just stone cold. You were. I'm just like, <laughs> can't. That's okay. You you got to be the stable one. One of us has I to do. be. I'm the well, manic which mess. doesn't doesn't say much. We're both not very, very stable. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Oh, wow. Okay. Good night, everybody. Or good day. Or good afternoon. Yeah. Whatever. Whatever tickles your fancy. Yep. (laughs) Okay. Ruin your week. (laughs) Bye, everyone. Bye. Kat and I are so grateful for all of our listeners, and we love hearing from you guys. Connect with us on Instagram and Facebook at Alternative Interest Podcast, and let us know your thoughts on this week's case. We want to cover the things that you guys want to hear. So please email us your case suggestions at alternativeinterestpodcast at gmail.com. As always, thank you so much for listening and sharing us with your friends. Be good to each other and we'll see you next week.